0: Our Old Testament lesson comes from 1 Kings chapter 21. First Kings chapter 21, hear now the word of our God. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and I said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite." So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent the the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city, and she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him, and the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, "'Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead.' And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, "'Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession.' And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. 1 Kings 21 is a remarkable story. You you can see the the utter depths of the depravity of the house of Ahab as Ahab wants to turn Naboth's vineyard into a vegetable garden. I realize horticulture probably isn't the the main subject of our study these days, but you probably know enough to know that a vineyard takes a long time to grow and mature and then really start producing well, whereas a vegetable garden is here today gone tomorrow you'll never notice it was there and that illustrates what ahab's all about the vineyard was a sign of israel's inheritance of naboth's inheritance that because he passed he received this vineyard from his fathers he will pass it on to his sons this vineyard is a tangible physical symbol of god's blessing on his people Wine that gladdens the heart, as Psalm 104 says. A vegetable garden is transient, here today, gone tomorrow. Ahab and Jezebel despise the inheritance. They are turning the promised land into a barren wasteland. In fact, the author of Kings can't help himself. He makes a parenthetical comment, which uh, this is like practically the only one in the whole book of Kings, I and mean, it just The book of Kings doesn't feel the need to comment much on people's stuff. But here he just can't help himself. And he says, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. Now, part of the reason why he feels the need to tell us this is because he's about to say, Ahab humbled himself before God. And he wants you to know, this repentance isn't true repentance. This repentance is just an outward show. It's not an inward change of heart. He wants us to know, Ahab is the worst king ever. Now, why is that important? Well, for two reasons. First, when the worst king ever humbles himself before God, God relents of the judgment he was going to bring upon him and postpones it. I mean, you'll notice that it's not that God will... Because if God doesn't actually do something about this, then God's not just. I mean, Ahab, Ahab's sin needs to be dealt with. It can't just be, oh, never mind, no big deal. God never says about sin, oh, it's no big deal. God postpones judgment. And so this is important because on the one hand, if God forgave Ahab because Ahab humbled himself how much more will God forgive you? And especially if you repent from the heart, <laughs> I mean, Ahab's sort of temporary outward show of repentance is enough to get God's forgiveness or at least postponing judgment. But basically, if, if Ahab humbles himself outwardly and God forgives him outwardly, how much more will God forgive those who repent from the heart? So this is a, 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 a part of what First Kings 21 is doing, is saying to you, your God is a God who forgives. He forgives even Ahab when Ahab... So therefore, you should repent. And also, as we'll see, as Jesus works off of this theme, and you also should forgive. Our Psalm of Response, Psalm 32, reflects on this and exhorts us not to be like Ahab uh, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you don't be stubborn it's not worth it it doesn't work when you sin repent uh, have you ever ever seen a recalcitrant mule in action yeah, there's a reason why they call it mule-headedness don't be a stubborn donkey Let your heart be soft and tender before the Lord. Our New Testament lesson comes from Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. Hear now the word of our God from Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe! So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. We've been seeing from Matthew 6 that that Jesus is really serious about the importance of forgiveness, that if you do not forgive your brother, then God will not forgive you. Here in Matthew 18, Jesus is making the same point, and he understands he's commanding something difficult. How many times should I forgive? Seven times? In other words, when do I get to hold it against him? When does the obligation to forgive expire? And Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Uh, uh, By the way, if if you're counting, 487, 488, two more times and I, you've missed the point. Because if you have forgiven from the heart, then you're not keeping track. Could we bear from one another what God daily bears from us? If if you are going to learn to forgive the way that God forgives, then you must learn to forgive your brother from the heart. Several years ago we hosted a number of conferences for a group of Midwestern Rwandans. It started in 2014, the twentieth anniversary of the Rwandan genocide. I was privileged to sit in on many of those sessions and in one of them the speaker said something I've never forgotten because it powerfully illustrates Jesus' point. He said, you have a choice. You can either forgive the people who killed your family and spend eternity with glory with those killers who repent. Or you can refuse to forgive the people who've killed your family and spend an eternity in hell with the killers who refuse to repent. (laughs) Now, if I were standing in front of a group of Rwandans, I don't think I'd have the courage to say that to them. Perhaps I should have the courage to say it, but, oh, my. The reason why he could say it was because uh, about half of his family was slaughtered, and he had had to learn this lesson himself as people came to him asking forgiveness. Jesus says that his kingdom is characterized by forgiveness. Jesus himself will illustrate this when hanging on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus on the cross has that disposition of forgiveness toward those who have put him there. And you might say, oh, well, that's all fine and good, but yeah, Jesus is God. I'm not. But the same Jesus who is true God also became true man. He became all that we are by nature so that we might become all that He is by grace. The Apostle Peter tells us in Second Peter 1, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, through these precious and great promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. You have been united to the life of Jesus. He has given you his spirit so that you might become like him. Now, as Peter makes clear, this doesn't just happen. You don't just sort of like sit there and you are suddenly transformed into what you should be. You have to believe these promises and act upon them. As Peter says in the very next verse, yeah, after saying that through his promises, through his you know, we we are made partakers of the divine nature, he then says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. You know, virtue doesn't just happen, you have to practice. Virtue with knowledge, you have to learn. Knowledge with self-control. Oh, that takes that takes work. <laughs> self-control with steadfastness steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For Peter tells us, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Peter warns us, for whoever lacks these qualities, in other words, if you're not supplementing your faith with virtue, with knowledge, with self-control, with steadfastness, with godliness, with brotherly affection, with love. If these qualities are not growing in you, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities you will never fall. It takes practice. It takes effort, diligence, persistence. And so we come to the fifth petition and the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. When you pray this, you are practicing these qualities. I don't know about you, but there are times when I pray the Lord's Prayer and I reach that line and I'm reminded... Hmm, have I forgiven so-and-so? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Have I forgiven? Because I'm asking God to forgive me the way I've forgiven. Am I practicing forgiveness? If I'm going to pray for God's will to be done on earth, then I must myself do God's will on earth. Jesus says explicitly in Matthew 6 that if you do not forgive your neighbor, then neither will God the Father forgive you. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If you are unwilling to forgive, then you should not expect God to forgive you. Now I understand this is hard, and so really, what I want to do today is focus on the hard case. What about those who don't repent? What about those who have done horrific things? And you're like, okay, I know I'm supposed to forgive them, and but what? How does this work? Well, the first thing we need to say is that forgiveness is not saying that's okay. Sin is never okay. Under no circumstances, when you forgive someone, are you saying, no big deal, no problem. It's okay. You're never saying that. Because sin is never okay. Sin is always a problem. Forgiveness is not washing something away sort of pretending it never happened. Forgiveness is dealing with the thing When you forgive someone, what you're saying is, and so it's okay to say it out loud like this what you did was wrong. It was a grievous sin against God and against me. But because I know that I could never stand before a holy God if he did not forgive me for my sins, therefore I will forgive you and not hold your sin against you anymore. In other words, because I want to be forgiven, therefore I will forgive. Now, forgiving them does not mean that the relationship is automatically restored because there are two parts to forgiveness. There's the disposition to forgive. And this is, this is one that you can have regardless of whether they repent. Because what if they don't repent? What if they're not sorry? What if, they, what if they're still the same way? Well, this is where having the disposition of forgiveness is itself forgiveness. You can and should have this disposition of forgiveness regardless of whether the other person repents. Now, the the second part of forgiveness is the transaction. But that requires the other person to repent. Repent if they don't repent there can be no transaction you might say you have forgiven the disposition is on your side you have in a sense extended forgiveness but they can't receive that forgiveness without repentance this is what and this is where sometimes if we if we don't recognize the distinction between the disposition and the transaction then you can get these really weird situations where you're like wait a second if i forgive i mean Take an extreme case, which uh, unfortunately is too common. Take somebody who's been abusive to children. They haven't repented. Are you going to bring your children around them? <laughs> no. So okay, but you forgive them. Does that mean the relationship has, is, is now restored as though it what never happened? No, because the transaction has not complete yet. You have a forgiving disposition. As for in, insofar as it belongs to you you have forgiven but until they repent the transaction is incomplete the situation the situation is not restored and you can't pretend that it is so with respect to your disposition you are ready and willing to forgive you are eager to forgive quite frankly you have forgiven them there's just one problem they haven't repented, and so the transaction hasn't processed. I mean, to use uh, you know, if you've got a debt, sort of you think about, okay, I wrote the check, I handed him the check, but he hasn't cashed it yet. <laughs> that transaction is incomplete until he cashes the check, and he won't and the only way you can cash the check in this case is to repent. Think of it this way. When you were dead in your sins, when you were alienated from God, were your sins forgiven? Now, in one sense, God's disposition toward you was gracious and forgiving. Think of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Does that mean that Pilate and Herod and everybody else is all going to heaven now? The disposition on Jesus' part was to forgive. But if they don't repent, they don't actually benefit from that disposition. And that's why Jesus says, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Because if you will not forgive others, then God will not forgive you. This is the point of the parable in Matthew 18 that we read earlier. The servant owes his master 10,000 talents. Just to give you some proportion here. When Rome conquered Carthage, Carthage paid 200 talents a year to Rome for 50 years. So the servant owes his master the equivalent of the tribute Carthage had to pay Rome over a 50-year period. In other words, this debt is ridiculous, absurd, and unimaginable. How does a servant rack up that sort of debt? this is jesus point we are like that servant with an unimaginable debt we deserve to be sold into slavery but god has had mercy on us and god has forgiven our debts but jesus has taught us to pray forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors but too often we are unfortunately like the servant when that same servant went out he found one of his fellow servants and you calculate the, servant, the second servant's debt. It's like twelve thousand dollars. That's you know, not a not a pittance. But on the other hand, twelve thousand dollars. You know, in a couple of years, he could probably pay it off. If God has forgiven you your billions, how dare you refuse to forgive your neighbor's twelve thousand? And now, the thing that perhaps is the most shocking about this parable is that the master revokes his forgiveness. He had forgiven the billions. And yet, when he hears that his servant hasn't forgiven his fellow servant, he revokes the forgiveness and reinstates the debt. Now at this point, all of us should be getting very nervous. Does this mean that God might forgive you temporarily and then revoke his forgiveness later? Yes. I wish I could say something else, but the answer is yes. That is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Notice, he's not just talking to the elect or true believers. He's talking to I mean okay, let's let's take a very concrete example. Simon Magus. Simon Magus in the book of Acts. Simon Magus repents, believes the gospel, is baptized, speaks in tongues with all the rest of the Samaritans, and is becomes part of the church. And then Simon Magus apostatizes. Now, when Simon repented and believed, what, he was baptized. What does, what does your baptism signify and seal? Baptism signifies and seals the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Simon Magus had you might say you know, this is why we read about about Ahab earlier when when Ahab repented outwardly, God forgave him outwardly. If you don't forgive from the heart, then Jesus says. You're, you'll, be for, you'll be forgiven the same way you repent, you might say. Simon Magus was baptized when, when, when Peter said on the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying is that there is a, a sort of, in a sense in which, all those who are baptized are sort of at least outwardly forgiven. You think about, again, Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The forgiveness is extended. The question is, is it received? Simon Magus received a baptism. He received the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. But, just like the king forgives the debt... With the the forgiveness of sins comes the requirement that you must also forgive others. If you do not forgive others, then you demonstrate that you have missed the point entirely. So also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. If you would pray, thy kingdom come, then you have to live as one who belongs to the kingdom of Jesus, who puts into practice the teachings of Jesus now the humility of obedience is difficult but when we think about forgiveness it comes close to impossible i mean when jesus says how how often 70 times 7 i mean in, in luke 17 the similar uh, Passage: Jesus says it slightly differently. He says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now just imagine that. In one day, the same sin, seven times. <laughs> You'd be like, Really? You're doing the same thing Again? You may recall a few years ago our, our brothers and sisters in Charleston, South Carolina, at the African Methodist Episcopal Church who offered forgiveness to the man who shot and killed their family and church members as I listened to them, I could see that they understood what Jesus requires because when they when they said, "We forgive you," they also called him to repentance. They didn't just say, "No big deal." It was a big deal. You killed my brother. <laughs> so they called them to repentance. They called him to believe, to believe in Jesus. I think of the same thing that happened in Egypt when, when, the, when the, 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 the Coptic priest, in his, in his sermon that got broadcast all over the world, said, we love you. He's like, wait, we, we love you to the killers? Yes. And we forgive you because our God has forgiven us and we want you to become one of us. It's like that sort of forgiveness is what Jesus is talking about. Because this is also where the only way that these people can benefit from your forgiveness is if they repent. So it's important to keep in mind the disposition of forgiveness on your part. Do you forgive from the heart? But then the transaction of forgiveness does the other person actually receive it? Do they repent? If you, if you don't think, you have a place for the disposition of forgiveness, that'd be a horrible situation to be in. Because if, if, if forgiveness is just a transaction, then to forgive somebody and then to sort of say, well, then I, it's over, then I am trapped by your sin. It's why the disposition of forgiveness is properly called forgiveness. I have forgiven you. I am free of the hatred and bitterness that could have resided in my heart. But because you haven't repented, you have not benefited from my forgiveness. And so that's where it's important to also remember what repentance is. Because repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. True repentance sees my sin for what it is. I have sinned against heaven and against you. What I did was horribly wrong. True repentance apprehends, it grabs onto the mercy of God in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sin and giving me a new heart so that I don't have to be like that anymore. True repentance grieves over my sin. Hates my sin. Turns away from my sin. Repentance is always a turning with an eager endeavor after new obedience. And true repentance will continue to grieve over the sin. Think of Paul. Back when he was Saul of Tarsus, he had been persecuting and murdering Christians. And you see in Philippians how Paul reflects back on that and says, that's what I was. And you you hear his... He continued to grieve over that. He continued to hate his old sin. And he continues to apprehend the mercy of God in Christ. thanks be to God. that's not me anymore. Now a word to the wise um, if if you're the one repenting, then be careful not to push the other person to you know it's, there's nothing more ugly than saying if you don't forgive me, then God won't forgive you. It, 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 it's a true statement, but it's not your job to say that right now. The right language of repentance. Is what Israel says to Moses: "We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you." Or what Achan said to Joshua: "Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did." Or the prodigal son who said, "Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son." Genuine repentance names the sin. So, as so you're thinking about when this in this transaction of of, of forgiveness, it's Sort of yeah, you, you need to see the other person's actual the steps they're taking, because in order to restore relationship, there needs to be there needs to be a bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Genuine repentance demonstrates that you've understood how you've wronged the other and how you intend to make it right, and that the, the, the transaction of forgiveness brings about the restoration of relationship after meeting so many Rwandans and talking with them about their stories i've i kept doing more reading on the subject and i've been struck by how many stories there are of true repentance true forgiveness even true reconciliation a mother whose only son was killed in the genocide when when the the killer came one of the killers came to uh, repent when she said to him, that's nice, but who will take care of me? My son is gone. He said, I will. <laughs> and so for many years after I did it was several years ago that I read the story, but he promised as, as a part of his own repentance to take care of that woman as his own mother. That this, he was like, I took away from you what the one who would have cared for you in your old age Therefore, I will care for you and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I, I can't imagine how hard that would be, probably on both sides. but how else do you repent? This is this is why we need mercy. This is, this is also part of the reason why I wanted to focus on Matthew 18 is because if we're going to do both the disposition and the transaction of forgiveness, Then we need to practice Matthew eighteen when there's when there's sin in the body. If somebody has sinned against you, then you go to them and you say, Ouch, that hurt. And then that begins the process of repentance, forgiveness. And obviously sometimes there's a disagreement about what really happened, and that's where you you need to bring in others. And seek. That's why Jesus says, if 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 when you go to him, he doesn't see the point. Well, then bring one or two others with you. Um, I I did this once in in college, where a a professor had had said some things publicly, uh, and so I I chose to take uh, one of his faculty members with me, a fellow faculty members with, to go to talk to him. It would have been easy for me to take a couple of my friends. But this is where oftentimes it's more useful to take his friends, the other party's friends with you because sure, it put me in an awkward position when they kind of ganged up on me. But on the other hand, afterwards, the other professor told me, this was the first time this professor had ever acknowledged that he did something wrong, (laughs) long story. But this is where when you go it, 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 you're, you're not trying to gang up on the person when you're going and taking witnesses. The, no, you're not ganging up on them. The point is, you want to bring them to repentance because the goal is to reach the transaction of forgiveness. You're going into the conversation already with the disposition of forgiveness. After all, Jesus, you have won your brother. I mean, if you if you're going into it with the goal of forgiveness, the goal of reconciliation, the goal of restoring the relationship, you're not going into this saying, I'm going to get this person. They're going to repent. No, you're going into it saying, I want you to repent. I want you to believe. I want you to follow Jesus. Then you go seeking to live out the kingdom of Jesus in the way this relationship is restored. So let us pray and ask God to give us mercy in this. Lord, have mercy because uh, we, we don't forgive the way you have forgiven. And too often we don't, we don't repent the way you call us to. We, we just try to paper over things and ignore them and pretend they'll go away. But that never works. We confess, Lord, that we fall far short of your glory and we pray that you would help us that by your Holy Spirit you would, you would grant us the, the wisdom and the grace to be diligent in seeking first your kingdom, in seeking to do your will, in seeking to repent and forgive the way that you have taught us. Lord, have mercy. And help us as we do this by your grace, that by your Spirit you would enable us more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness in our daily lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.